to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from UBC's campus on the unceded, ancestral, and traditional Musqueam territory in Vancouver. I am your host, Saira Unju, and we have a great show for you today. I say this every show because our show is just amazing overall. So an overview, we're going to start with an interview that I did with Megan Mahevsky for the East Side Culture Crawl. I just want to give a heads up. There are some annoying background noises because of the internet, um, but that's okay. It's not too much. It's still a good interview. The audio is still good, so we're good. It's really interesting, so listen to that. And then uh, we're going to go to an Adam PSA break. The, after this really quick break, we're going to be back with a review of Heart of the City Festival that Eva did. Do you remember Eva? She did an interview with Black Pontiac last week. Yes, that Eva. And then after that, I have my interview of Studio 58's Risky Nights event, Fort. And then again, quick ad and PSA break. And after that, we have a review of Nico. Not of Nico. We have... <laughs> That was stupid. We have a review of La Voix Humaine that Nico did. Did you like my did you like my accent? I've I've been I've been taking French my whole life, so hopefully my accent was good. <laughs> Anyways, and then we're going to fin- finish off the show with a review that I'm going to be doing of Buffoon that the Arts Club Theater Company is putting on right now. So, let's start with the interview, shall we? Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Today I have Megan Mayevsky with me, and we will be talking about her series of paintings inspired by the BC wildfire wildfires called Fire Followers. Fire Followers will be exhibited in the UBC's Beauty Biodiversity Museum. I cannot talk today. <laughs> but Megan is also one of the artists participating in a 24th annual East Side Culture Crawl. And for those of you who might not know, each November the East Side Cultural Crawl Society holds the East Side Culture Crawl Visual Arts Design and Craft Festival in which artists in Vancouver's East Side open their studios to the public. Um, hi, Megan. How are you doing? Hi. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. And to start off with the culture crawl, I was wondering if you've ever been part of this festival before. Yes, I lost track of how many years. I'm probably going on at least six, maybe even seven or eight. Oh, so wow. quite a few years. Yeah, that, that's really cool. And at first, like six, seven years ago, um, how did you get started with it? Did they reach out to you or did you reach out to them? How did it happen? I don't remember. It was um, my first studio space that I had on my own. We were in the perimeters of the culture crawl. So I think, I mean, I'd known about it years before. I used to be an attendee and go see artist spaces. So mm -hmm. when I finally had a studio that was in that area, then it was like, I get to be a part of this. And it was such, it's such a great experience every year. I mean, I, it's, I'm sucks that I miss out on being a participant of seeing other artist studios, yeah. but I love having people come into my studio and see where I work and what I'm working on and have conversations not only with people that know my work, but people that have never seen my work before. And you get exposed to different uh, people, different people seeing your work. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. And um, how <laughs> long have you been painting for in general? Um, I mean, I'd say my whole life pretty much, but uh, as my full-time career and painting very seriously, I think just over a 
decade now. Oh, wow. Okay. So quite a, quite a long time. Yeah, it has been. And I read that before you started painting full time, you were um, doing animations in TV and movies, right? Yeah, I went into that career because I knew I wanted to be an artist even when I was young. I was like, this is, I need to do some sort of art for a career. And I went into animation and visual effects because I mm -hmm. felt like it was kind of more the safer route of I get a job in this. I can't just be a painter. And I loved that job. And I loved the pro projects that I got to work on and the people I got to work with, but I was still so drawn to creating my own visions and creating my own paintings. And I've found my whole day I'd work in animation, then I'd go home and I'd paint all night. And I'm like, I can't keep this up forever. I need to mm -hmm. choose one career path. And I took a chance and decided to just pursue my own art full time. Yeah, that's amazing. And how would you describe your style of art? So I kind of, I'm a little bit branching out into some different territory with my art. Um, I'm mostly known for my pop surreal work. So mm -hmm. I do a lot of pop culture sort of inspired work and a lot of figurative work with a lot of dark undertones to mm -hmm. it. But then recently I've been working on a lot of floral work, which I thought at first it was very different from my normal normal work but then when I look at it together I'm still even though it's a bit different I'm still using a lot of the same colors and still a lot of the same themes of something that's both beautiful and has maybe a darker story to it so mm -hmm. I'm still it's still my work even though it's kind of going down a different path mm -hmm. that's interesting when you started to experiment with new you know like floral work did you did that happen consciously you were like let me try something out new or was it kind of just a process that happened without you um it was sort of organically I found um in my studio I'm painting a lot of figurative work or a lot of like animals and characters but then when I go out traveling or go on walks or around the city, I'd have my watercolor sketchbook and a lot of times I'd be drawn to more nature and I'd draw flowers and mm -hmm. plants and uh, more that kind of stuff. So then my sketchbook was full of more plant life. And then I just kind of, then that built into something, I guess. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's cool. And yeah. um, let's talk a little about Fire Followers. Um, yes. So it was inspired by the BC wildfires. So I'm assuming you started making the artwork after the wildfires, like not long after. I'm just curious about how long this has been in the making. The idea for this project itself, I think it started as sort of a rough idea a few years ago. It was just it was something that I was curious about. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, living in BC, fires and forest fires are such a part of all of our lives. But I realized I'd never been to an area after a forest fire. And I was curious of what that looked like. So when I was visiting some family at home, I had somebody take me out to a place where there was a really bad forest fire near mm -hmm. where my grandparents used to live and where I grew up. And just seeing that was so inspiring and the, then I started to look into more forest fire areas and they all looked so different mm -hmm. some are just like devastation and it's just black and nothing's growing and then you go to other areas where some plants are actually thriving because that's part of the natural cycle of the forest mm -hmm. forest fires do actually need to happen and there's healthy forest fires and there's unhealthy ones and seeing the difference in going to those different places and some of the areas where it's been more of a healthy forest fire and it's the most beautiful thing you've seen there's like the trees are these tall blackened sticks but then it's just meadows of flowers and it's amazing and I was just seeing that I'm like I need to bring that beauty into art and show people and kind of open up the conversation a bit more through art and that's what the exhibit itself is is kind of telling the story of the forest after the forest fire and the destruction and I'm doing the art that's going to kind of open that conversation and then my collaborative partner Sharon Roberts she's doing writing and writing essays and she's actually going to tell more stories about the people that forest fires affect in the communities and um, telling that side of the story. So it's kind of more 
seeing this not through a science lens, but more an artistic lens, which I think will open the conversation in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a great segue into my question about <laughs> your collaboration with Sharon Roberts. How did it happen? Did you guys know each other beforehand or did you get in touch uh, with Sharon for this project? Um, we actually have known each other for a long time, probably more than a decade. Okay. Um, and I grew up in the Kootenays and she grew up in the Okanagan. Mm-hmm. And I think this just started as a conversation when I was interested in this idea and she had so many ideas of it as well and we kind of went on our first research road trip not knowing where it was going kind of just to feed our curiosity of like well let's go to those places and let's talk to people and see the areas and from that and that's when it's like hey let's turn this into a project Mm -hmm. and it was really interesting as well because the Okanagan fires and people it's very different from Kootenays and having both a tie to where we grew up in both those places, then it's like this project's very personal to both of us. It like has a little piece of us in the project itself. Yeah. So in the, it, it's been a collaboration from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of, uh, when it was very, the very beginning spark of an idea, then we just kind of had a conversation and realized how much we were both interested in this. So it kind of grew very organically. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. And I also read that you gathered charcoal from the fires to incorporate into your art. Um, mm-hmm. how, how did you come up with this idea? Um, it was sort of, it was in that first initial research road trip I like looking at the, I took flowers and I pressed the flowers and I took a bit of charcoal and I was like, I wonder if I can turn this into pigment and do something with this. So I gathered a bit and then I brought it back to my studio and tried a few different methods of grinding it into a pigment. And I found working with it was really fun. And it's really interesting. It adds more to the story of each piece of like, this is actual charcoal from this burnt forest Mm -hmm. that now I'm using as part of the art piece And then I'm painting the flowers that are using that charcoal to kind of feed and grow off of. So it's like celebrating the forest that's gone and celebrating the forest that's going to be coming up. Mm -hmm. And did you collect the charcoal from different um, parts, like different forests that have been burnt? Or was it just a single one? How was the... Um, It was... Yeah, I collected a little bit from each place that I went to Mm because I kind of wanted to see if there was a difference. And there was actually a few that there was, it was a bit different. Like there was some fires where the charcoal was so rich and black. Mm -hmm. And I had like a little sample that I painted each charcoal from each place and wrote notes of like, this is from this place, this is from this place. So I have a little bit from each place that I went to. That's really cool. I That's really um, creative too, which is... (laughs) I mean, it's really amazing. I don't think I've ever heard anyone who used charcoal from um, forest fires <laughs> in yeah. paintings. And um, what's your usual medium that you use for your paintings? My usual medium, I work mostly in acrylic um, in my studio. And when I'm traveling, then I use mostly watercolor just because it's easy to bring watercolor with me wherever I go. But for most of my finished pieces, they're definitely acrylic. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. And um, about fire followers, is there anything that you would want to tell the listeners about fire followers that, you know, something that they should be expecting if they're seeing it or just something special to your heart about the exhibition that you want them to know? So the exhibit, it's we're hoping because it's going to actually be up longer than we intended, because of COVID, it kind of put a pause on the whole show. It was actually going to be up in the spring and be coming down now. And we're going to be getting it up hopefully this month. And it'll be up until the fall of next year. And we're, we're hoping that because of the long exhibition timeline, we want to be able to add to the story mm-hmm. and have it almost like a, a growing exhibition. It's like a lot. It's its own life form. of Maybe I'll add more work to it, more more stuff we're trying to <clears throat> figure out where how we want to add stuff but we definitely have some ideas so it's something that people can definitely check back in on it's gonna be different as it goes throughout the year oh that's that's good to know that's really interesting and yeah. um finally where can people find you and your art yes yeah, so 
you can find me the easiest place would maybe be go to my website because then you can get all the different social media links there. I post a lot of stuff on Instagram. There's going to be a lot more of a direct link to the show itself for the biodiversity museum. And you can email me there. So you'd find me at deadkitty.com, D-E-A-D-K-I-T-T-I-E.com. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, (laughs) it was a lot of fun. FM Vancouver Reloaded, playing your favorite tunes and mouth-humping your ear holes full of voice talk. Yeah, we do that. When you purchase the latest TV, tablet, or smartphone, don't forget to do the right thing with your old ones. Recycle them. The Consumer Electronics Association and its members are making recycling your old devices as easy as buying new ones. Just go to greenergadgets.org Type in your zip code, and you'll instantly find the recycling location closest to your home. You'll also find recycling tips, like asking the store where you buy your new TV if they'll haul away your old one. Don't let your old tech tools clog your local landfill. Just visit greenergadgets.org. Hello, 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 my fellow humans. I'm back. I hope you liked that interview, because now I'm going to leave again and we're going to have the review that Eva's going to do of Heart of the City Festival. Enjoy. Hey everybody, this is Eva and I'm going to be talking to you about the 17th annual Heart of the City Festival. So that's a festival that's been running from Wednesday, October 28th and it continues on to Sunday, November 8th. So at this point, there's going to be about four more days left of the festival with some kind of continuing events happening after the official end date. So I saw a few events that went down on October 29th. So I saw three events. First of all, I went and saw the Hastings Street Band play on Abbott and Hastings, I believe it was. And then I saw some window displays downtown um, with the Grounds for Goodness project. And then lastly, I watched um, An Evening with Delana. So I'm going to walk you through the kind of the gist of the festival, what other events you can see at this point, what my kind of top picks would be, and then my thoughts on what I did see on the 29th. So first of all, I don't know if you've been to the Heart of the City Festival in years prior, but clearly festivals are not as <laughs> what they once were this year. So the team has adapted much of the festival to online, but you can see in-person events. Almost every day, there are a couple exceptions, so check the website and their Facebook for details. Uh, There will be one in the streets performance from 1 p.m. till 3 p.m., and they post the specifics of that on Facebook. So I was going to go on the 29th, and I happened to see the Hastings Street Band, but I kind of, it was exciting because you only find out on the day. Um, So that was very exciting because the Hastings Street Band is totally up my alley. It was a super cool brass uh, New Orleans kind of style street band. And I mean, more than anything, it was just nice to see live music again, really. I mean, kids were super into it. Anyone who walked by was dancing or had a smile on their face, and it was super uplifting. So the downtown east side, Heart of the City Festival, each year has a theme, and this year it is This Gives Us Strength. And now, obviously, uh, 2020 has brought its share of uh, difficulties and challenges, of which we're all trying to overcome. Uh, I mean, worldwide pandemic being one, but specifically in our city, the fentanyl crisis rages on in the east side. We're dealing with the climate crisis, overdue backlash towards systemic racism, U.S. politics. I mean, I can't stop thinking of ways in which 2020 is really messed up. And so this gives us strength is uh, the idea is to show ways in which our city and our community is coping with these um, mentally, emotionally draining events that we're all living through right now. It's unprecedented times and it's important right now to show that we have community and that people are dealing with this and kind of give sources for strength for people in our community and show that kindness happens all around us, whether or not we're aware of it or whether or not we choose to be aware of it. So one event that I thought did a good job of highlighting these themes was the Grounds for Goodness window displays. This is a great way to physically engage with the festival without uh, putting yourself at risk for COVID. You don't go inside any buildings, you're just walking around the city on a kind of little scavenger hunt and locations are posted uh, online where these window displays exist. 
And in these window displays are cards with anecdotes that people from the community have written about times that they've witnessed kindness or community being fostered throughout COVID. So two things that I liked. Um, there was one story a writer talked about how the LGBT and trans flag crosswalks had been vandalized in their hometown. And so in the days and nights leading up to Pride, there was a constant stream of volunteers watching over the crosswalks and making sure that they weren't vandalized. Another is specifically in Vancouver, and they talk about how there is a woman, Ellie, who ran discussion and workshops for um, downtown Eastside riders at the Carnegie Community Center. And they really emphasized the lasting legacy she had and how influential she was in the community because a lot of these writers remain in, in each other's support systems and they still meet up to this day. So those were the first two events that I went to on October 29th. And before I get into the last one, which was an evening with Delana Gilbowen, I will kind of give you my top picks for events that are still happening and that you can go see after this, after the 4th of November. So I was given a flyer by the kind man outside the Hastings Street Band, um, and I'm just going to read off some uh, blurbs for some events that I think look really interesting. So tomorrow, happening from 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m., that's November 5th, is a circle conversation called Talking Truths, Matriarchs Uprising. So it's online, and you must register for it. It's limited to 100 people, so go to the festival website to pre-register if you like. Basically... Joining um, artistic director Olivia C. Davies in historical conversation is Delana Gale Bowen, Diane Roberts, Rosemary A. Georgeson, and Savannah Walling, and they will be discussing ways that they have confronted and overcome adversity in the arts and changed the way we look at the world around us by incorporating matriarchal values and right relations agreements into the work. The circle conversation is on Zoom, followed by an interactive Q&A. So I must say as well, with everything being online now, it does give the opportunity, as I as I noticed in my uh, live streamed event that I saw, to actually interact with these um, artists with a live Q and A, which is really fascinating. So that's that's a perk for sure. Again, happening on Tuesday or Thursday, November fifth. That's tomorrow from seven p.m. to eight p.m. is a showing of the film Yellow Peril: Queer Destiny, and it's only twenty minutes long. So again, free but donations are appreciated. You can view the film Yellow Peril, Queer Destiny, followed by live Q&A on Zoom with co-directors David Ng, Jen Sunshine, and Kendall Yan. So Queer Destiny, um, or Yellow Peril, Queer Destiny, is an experimental short documentary that follows drag artist Maiden China as she explores nuances of the queer Chinese diasporic culture and identity. The film continues to be relevant in the world's current situation. To quote David Ng, what COVID-19 has revealed is that in times of desperation and scarcity, the nation state requires scapegoats. We're seeing this unfold in xenophobic violence, and I'm interested in how we can use arts to transform our queer Asian futures. I don't want to return to normal because normal wasn't working. So I think that sounds fantastic, and I'll probably be tuning in for that one. Only 20 minutes. You got the time for it. All right, and Friday, November 6th, this is my last one I'll tell you about, is a panel happening, and it's the sixth annual Symposium on Reconciliation and Redress in the Arts, part two. So this one is happening November 6th, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. And again, this is free, but donations are appreciated. So the description for this is as follows. C.S. Weiss and Erwin Ustindi host this online panel with Kamala Todd from SFU Urban Studies and small group discussions exploring decolonizing settler cultural policy in Vancouver. While addressing the role of place-based redress, we will examine case studies to face to place the face of local Indigenous peoples on the land through decolonizing arts policy. The symposium series provides a unique professional development approach to our roles as cultural workers on these unceded lands and the implications for settlers and migrants, our organizations, and our city. So that sounds fantastic, and I think you'll notice as well that these are three very different events. There is something for everybody here. You've got music, you've got panels, discussions that you can be involved with, thanks to the technology at hand, and it's just fantastic. So go to the Heart of the City Festival website to find out what kind of events you want to hit before it ends in four days. You got to get on this. It doesn't happen for another year. And so my last item here, before I leave you, I want to kind of unpack the event that I saw in Evening with Delana Gale Bowen. That was on the 29th, and if you want to see it, if you're liking the way it sounds, you can actually um, access the live stream's archived footage on the um, archived videos section of the website for the Heart of the City Festival, which is super cool. So if you aren't aware of Delana, um, you're missing out, and I would highly recommend you take a look at either this video archive from the festival or her album from 2019, Looking Back. 
I listened to that record recently, I would say a couple weeks before the festival actually, so it was quite a surprise to see her on the roster for the festival and I decided, oh, I definitely need to watch that. So Delana is kind of a big deal because she was in the first ever all-female girl band to come out of Winnipeg, and this was in 1965. They were called The Feminine Touch, and get this, they opened for bands and also played alongside bands like The Monkees, The Guess Who, Led Zeppelin, and The Blues King himself, B.B. King. So honestly, it's very exciting to have her be a part of our downtown east side arts culture. So let's briefly talk about the returning journey. I don't want to get too into it because I want to make sure that if you're interested in Delana's life and um, this wonderful piece of art, that you can go see it and experience it without my interpretation forced onto you. But um, here are some themes that I thought were really interesting, things that got to me, um, empowered me, and I found really interesting about her story and the way she presented it. So we start off with, um, it's a selection of six songs and then poetry kind of placed in and around it uh, to kind of make this one comprehensive storyline. So she's joined by Michael Krieber, who is the pianist, and clearly they have such an amazing chemistry and working relationship. Uh, I know that he's the producer of Looking Back, so I, I can tell that these are old friends and they work very well together. So the two of them create such a fabulous climate, and Delana talks about this word, climate in particular, about how she wanted to create a setting with Michael uh, that really places the listener into her storyline. So, and I think they did a wonderful job of it. it. It's, he's playing constantly. And what I noticed too, I was watching with my boyfriend Tate and he's a pianist and he pointed it out to me that Michael doesn't have any sheet music going on. He has a list, he has one page of Delana's lyrics and then he has one page of what looks to be like piano chords. So just guiding chords, ideas, and all of his solos sound like they're improvised, which is really kind of incredible because it's a long piece as well. So at the beginning, the climate that is established is one of hardship, misery, cold, and she grew up in Winnipeg. In um, She was adopted and it sounds like there's some abuse in her childhood. And it's just a horrible energy, really. And she talks about this is a wretched place. This is a terrible place. Nobody ever gets out of here. Um, and she speaks about the intersection of at Carroll and Cordova. And I'm from Vancouver, so my first thought was about the intersection on the downtown east side, which is maybe not known to, uh, to be the most safe area of the city, perhaps a dark place for some. And as I'm thinking this, Tate, who is from Winnipeg, uh, crops up and says, oh, Carroll and Cordova, that's cool. That's an intersection in Winnipeg. So I thought that was interesting. And the more I think about it, maybe it's supposed to be a kind of foreshadowing about yes you will get out of here and there maybe you'll be standing at Carolyn Cordova in Vancouver and then she moves into the song Mama's Got the Blues and holy I, I would swear but I'm keeping it PG but I'm really really emphatic about this fantastic voice she has that quintessential growl of the blues that raspy tone um, mastery of just such a deep and high um, tones and she has just a fantastic range. The phrasing and emotion of this woman, I was in tears, like full on tears twice. And then I watched it the second time around and it got me all over again. <laughs> I was kind of a mess. So tying into the overall theme of the festival, this gives us strength. Delana is showing us that one of her sources of strength has been music. It tied her to herself, grounded her. It was her passion and it helped her get through all the challenges that life has thrown at her. And another thing she mentions being a backbone for her is community. And even when she said, even in her drug days, she still had this deep connection to community, her need to belong, and that gave her strength to decide to live eventually. And now one last piece that I would like to highlight as a source of strength that Delana talks about frequently in this piece. She's half Cherokee and half black, and part of her strength comes from her ancestry, her connection to spirit. She said that she never really lost that, but she did say one really interesting quote that I'd like to highlight for you. She's talking about um, how she goes through a renaming ceremony, and she says, I'm new at this only at the surface, but my knowing is timeless. And I thought that was so interesting because while she lost connection to her faith um, and her spirituality, her heritage was always there, and her understand, her knowing is timeless. So our connections to our community and to our heritage will always be there, and that can be a source of strength for us. 
Okay, well, that's me. I hope that you all enjoyed my review of the Heart of the City Festival. And remember, there are four days left of this event, so I hope that you all will go and enjoy what our downtown east side has to offer. Thank you, Eva, for that review. I'm back, guys. Have you missed me? Um, before I get into my review, I want to say, just like Eva said, check out the Heart of the City Festival. It sounds really cool. Okay, so I'm gonna talk about Studio 58 and their Risky Nights. So this was, um, Studio 58 has Risky Nights where normally it's a smaller audience and in person, but this year it of course couldn't happen like that because, you know, COVID. So this was their first ever made for Zoom theatrical production. Wow, words. Okay, so Fort offered a choice to escape into the world you wish to see, which means that there were three rooms and you got to choose which one you attended. I attended two of them and I'll be talking about both. I unfortunately do not remember what the third one was. Um, also, the name Fort is super cute because they basically encouraged you, like, us to make a blanket fort, you know, to get cozy and watch the show. And they even gave a list of fort necessities, which is super cute. The list included blankets, pillows, PJs, chairs on a table, and, like, optional string lights, etc. But most importantly, your imagination. <laughs> So you set up your blanket fort. I unfortunately couldn't because I had stuff beforehand and I actually barely made it to the, you know, the Zoom meetings, which was unfortunate, but I made it to them. I watched them. Yes. Um. But yeah, you get cozy and I'm quoting Studio 58 right now. Tune in to the digital theatrical experience that strives to bridge distances and collectively dream of a better tomorrow which sounds amazing. Okay, the two that I watched were The Shame Spiral and Political Party. Again, I don't remember what the third one was. I'm so sorry. Let's start with The Shame Spiral because that was the first one I watched. So there were three characters and each of them were going through, you guessed it, a shame spiral. It was interesting to be able to focus on each of them separately because it only showed whoever was talking, you know. There were no distractions besides the occasional viewer who didn't know how to use Zoom and turn on their cameras on accident. But the actors were really cool. They were really professional about it. Um, In like the second character I'm going to talk about, Andy, he actually, when he was talking someone accidentally turned their camera on and he was like like okay I don't remember her name let's say it was Susan and then Andy went like you Susan and then Susan turned her camera off and I thought that was amazing it's just you know improvisation hell yeah (laughs) okay anyways I don't really remember the name of the first character but basically so she had bipolar type 2 And that made my little psych major heart really happy because the research was done. There are three types of bipolar, bipolar disease, like bipolarity. I hate calling it a disease. It's not. Anyways, but there's this misconception that there's only one, you know, bipolar, bipolar is just one bipolar. No, there's a lot of misinformation. So I'm really happy that they actually did good research And she was able to portray the illness well. And so she was really good. I don't know the names of the actors. Unfortunately, I don't know the names of any of the actors that I'm going to be talking about. And I couldn't find the information now. But I just want to say everyone did a really good job. Anyways, so her character had some drug problems. And she was going down the shame spiral because she did a coke in her best friend's bathroom but that is trauma territory for her best friend so you know she got dumped and then she had this night where it was just too much alcohol mixed with too many drugs and she talked about what happened and at the end uh and by at the end i mean not at the end of the night at the end of like her section which was like a couple months uh, after in the timeline, um, she was put together and told us how she was meeting up with this said friend to see if they could patch things up. 
and we then moved on to the second character um also i just want to say it wasn't like it was the first one started ended and then second one started and it was like first one showed a little of that and then showed a little of the second one showed a little of the third one it was you know like little by little <laughs> anyways <laughs> the second character was a children's show host Andy. Uh, his show, Andy's Couch, had a really funny character, Dog. <laughs> I don't know why, but I laughed a lot. A, a little too much, maybe. Very loudly when Dog was on, because he was he was talking, but he was just saying the word dog. So he was like, dog, 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 dog. <laughs> also, he had a dog filter on. I, I can't imagine acting with a dog filter on. Anyways, okay. Basically, Andy's couch is failing the show. So, and the advice he gives to children is um interesting to say the least. In my notes, I wrote, You're a loser. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> this is this is a direct quote from one of his advices so you you might understand why i chose the word interesting andy's section was just hilarious to me the part where he was going down the shame spiral was not funny of course but the actor was just really good at making me laugh prior to that so i couldn't stop i'm i'm so sorry okay the last part like the last character was Costas if I remember correctly like if I remember his name correctly Costas talked about his sister and basically tried to show her that she has the courage she needs and she can do what she wants I'm not gonna lie to you his section made me tear up a little it was very emotional for me because I I have an older brother and it felt like I was listening to something he was saying to me. You know, so many emotions. Andy making me laugh and then Costas making me cry. What are you doing, Studio 58? Anyways, but overall, all three of them were really good. I thought that it being over Zoom would make it, you know, less good. Not worse, but like less good. Um, if that makes sense, but it didn't. It was it was a different style. It was its own style, and also a pro of Zoom with like my mic and my video off was that I could react to what was happening, however I wanted. It was amazing. I like I can't talk out loud in a theater, so this was great. I was just reacting to stuff. The second one I watched the second night was Political Party. And again, you guessed it, it was political. Um, the three characters were a puppet with a man, of course, a kindergarten teacher and a conspiracy theorist. So, um, <laughs> wow, my notes for this one are more organized, which I wish I had done for the other one. <laughs> Anyways, the puppet was a presidential candidate. It showed how awful some people are. <clears throat> I wrote down um, I wrote down a quote which was pretty powerful in my opinion. Presidents don't run any anything. <laughs> I messed that up. Presidents don't run anything. They're just puppets. So you know, he was just a puppet. Basically, they separated the puppet from the guy that was working it. So it was like the puppet was an independent being. You know, and the guy was trying to tell the people that this puppet would not be a good president, but he ended up being elected anyways. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The second character, the kindergarten teacher, gave me chills. It was about protests and riots, but, you know, told through the forts of a kindergarten. Um, because they were trying to... They, they were trying to... Oh my god, they were trying to... What's the word? Not build, the opposite of build. I cannot think of it right now. The forts. Okay, so something that she said that hit me in the feels was, as long as we stay alive, the monster can't beat us. This stuck with me because I have witnessed my fair share of protests and riots against the monster in Turkey back home, and she's right. As long as we're alive, we will not be beaten. And the last character was a conspiracy theorist. In the beginning, he was talking about the Mandela effect, 
we were like active on the chat which was really cool and then at the end he was losing his mind man people were mocking him so he was mad at how he was just trying to inform us but we weren't taking him seriously he reminded me of someone but i don't want to say it in case i'm wrong so let me know who you think it might be um <laughs> okay again the actors did a great job Acting from home in front of a laptop is most probably very difficult. I have never tried it, so I can't really speak on it, but it sounds difficult. Uh, but they were all great. The writing for all six of these were amazing. I mean, you might have guessed it since I quoted a lot, which I usually don't do. I wish I had attended Risky Nights before COVID so that I could compare previous years with this one. But I also think it's a good thing that I didn't because this was its own thing for me. You know, how they did it was very original and I'm really happy that Studio 58 adapted to Zoom for this instead of canceling it. Loved it. Thank you, Studio 58. Um... <laughs> Okay, anyways, so we're gonna go into a quick ad and PSA break and then we're gonna be back. Without the help and support of our friends, we here at CITR wouldn't be able to bring you all the great music, art, cinema, and culture that you love. Thanks to the long-standing support from the Rio Theater, we are able to keep you informed on all the great artists, films, and everything else coming to town there. For all the current information about who and what's playing at the Rio Theatre, visit their website at www.riotheatre.ca. I got a stack of records here, a stack of records there. I got records scattered all over everywhere, but I'm looking... Discorder Magazine has been supporting independent music for over 30 years, and it keeps on living by joining efforts with local music supporters such as Vinyl Records. You can find a selection of Vinyl Records' featured albums on the back cover of Discorder and can support your favorite local bands and artists by purchasing their records. For more information on their vast selection of new, used, and rare music, go to vinylrecords.ca. Welcome back everyone! If you're just tuning in now, hi, this is The Arts Report, I am Saira Unju, and we have two reviews. So, next up is Nico's review of La Voix Humaine, and after that I have my review of Buffoon, so enjoy! My name is Nico Martin Mechino. And I'll be talking today about Vancouver Opera's production of Francis Poulon's La Voix Humaine, which is a one-act opera about a woman and her last phone call with her lover. Now, I'll quickly give a brief description about what the play is all about, and I'll directly quote it from the synopsis of the Vancouver Opera website. A woman, L, lies in her apartment. At first, we do not know if she is alive or dead. She rises and is about to leave when the phone interrupts her. There is confusion on the line with wrong numbers and crossed wires. Finally, the third call gets through. It is her ex-lover. She tells him that she was out with a friend, Marthe, the night before, after which she took a pill to help her sleep upon her return home. The couple discusses their past relationship and she blames herself for their problems, telling him everything is my fault. Tout est ma faute. Pardon my French. As the conversation continues, there are numerous telephone problems and the connection terminates. She calls her former lover back but learns he is not at home. He has been out all evening. He calls back and she hides the fact she knows that he is not calling from home. She admits to have lied about going out with Marth, Marthe and tells him that the truth is she attempted to die from suicide by taking sleeping pills. After taking the pills, she called Marthe and Marthe came with the doctor to save her. Suddenly, she hears background music and suspects that her lover is at his new girlfriend's home. She hints at this suspicion, but she never, but she never confirms it. She, reveal, she reveals that she is obsessed with the telephone and has slept with it in bed the past two nights. 
Again, the connection is terminated and she panics. Her lover calls back again and she tells him that she has a telephone cord wrapped around her neck. She tells him to hang up while she professes her love over and over again until at last the connection is cut for the last time. So again, that was the synopsis of the the opera, which is called La Voix Humaine, The Human Voice in translation. And it was a opera that ran for 40 minutes. And the virtue of this performance being that it was on digital was that it had English subtitles. So at first when I was watching it and everything, I was trying to find an online translation but uh, I couldn't find one until I actually went to the channel that I was watching it on. And there was, of course, an option to give English subtitles. So I was very fortunate in that and was able to follow along uh, a little bit more, more specifically. Now, this, this opera was staged in, uh, in a minimalistic aspect. So the setting was just the bed, some um, furniture in the living room. There was a bathtub. And, uh, of course, there was a phone, which, like mentioned in the subnosis, she carried around. And the play in itself is, is, is all about the phone. Now, the phone call is, uh, is, is very interesting because, you know, she always goes back and she always says, you know, all I have is this phone. And, um, <laughs> you know, she even mentions that the cord is the last thing that attaches us. So you can imagine that being in love with someone so deeply and, and you really have this intangible sense of, of connection towards your, your lover, you know, and, uh, she, she carries the phone around as if it was him, you know, and it, she almost romanticizes the phone as if it were him and, and touches it, embraces in it. And just like in the synopsis said, you know, she, she had the, the cord around her neck and what she specifically said in that moment was, uh, I have the cord around my neck. I have your voice around my neck. And I believe she repeated that about two times. So she she's going through a difficult moment. And of course, her, her lover is uh, parting ways with her. And the, the, the structure of the play doesn't, uh, isn't too obvious because it is a one act and it is only just one person talking. So the only way that we get uh, structure in, in, in this play is through her body movements. And I can say that her body movements can go from being on the on her bed, laying on her bed, being on the couch, kind of lounging and fiddling around with the phone to kind of yelling, but more specifically, of course, just hitting those high notes in, in her in her voice and, um, you know, just kind of kind of screaming in anguish because she doesn't have the love that she that she wants so badly. Now, another interesting dynamic about this play was that it was an all-female team. Now, what I mean by that was uh, the singer, who is Mirelle Lebel. She is a meso-soprano. She was the lead, of course, and the only one in the play. And the pianoist was Kinza Tyrell. And the stage manager was Teresa Sang. So what this really brought to the, the opera was that, and they mentioned this at the beginning of of the production was that uh, it gave an, it gave the option for all these women, this, this, this female team to really diverse into what it, what it's, what it's like to have uh, a lost lover, you know, and, and that final goodbye from a female point of view. And uh, I think that brought a lot of purity to the play because this is completely from a female perspective. At least that's what uh, L, you know, and L of course, in French stands, uh, stands as she, the, the main the main character the protagonist l she is really this is this is her perspective and um, she goes back and forth of course of you know saying that she adores him and that she loves him to saying that he's so kind to her to also being heartbroken by understanding that as soon as she says that there's the sudden reality that um, they're no longer together so it is uh it, it was a nice play and it was staged wonderfully and there were no other instruments other than the piano i think uh, traditionally there would be a full um a full few more sets of instruments so it was uh it was pretty for myself i was quite engaged i do like opera and uh, the story in itself is always melodramatic and um, opera in itself is is just a form of and it's such a beautiful form of, of drama because of, of the voices and, and the pitches that the the singers can hit. But um, 
it was it was one of those experiences that uh, I was grateful to to be a part of, and this is going to be the first dig- digital season of the Vancouver Opera. Now, just to give you a little bit more background on this play, on this opera, it was originally a stage play, and it was the stage play was written in the 1920s, and it first premiered in the 1930s, and this is all in Paris, France. So again, the setting of this of this opera was that they wanted it to be the 1950s Paris type of type of feeling. So if you do watch the opera, you'll see that it is kind of those Paris 1950s vibes. Now, the play originally turned into the opera in the in 1958, which then the following year it finally premiered. It's I don't the, I guess the impression the the effect that it had on me was just you you feel so so bad for for the lady at the end because there's nothing you can do but the most interesting part was just the the dynamic of of the telephone itself because she she longs to hear to embrace and to be with her partner but all she can hear is her voice and she said so much in in the opera you know I hear your voice and it's as if you were here with me it's as if my head is on your chest you know it is if it is as if I can feel your heat and um you, you long for her because at the end, at least towards the end, you know that eventually she's going to have to say goodbye and she's going to have to move on. And there's also the complexity that she tried to commit suicide the night before. But she frequently mentions that she doesn't have the courage to die alone. She doesn't have the courage to go along with it. She doesn't know where to buy a gun. So she doesn't know where to start, you know, obviously being fairly dramatic, but um, not even dramatic. It's just how she feels. It's real to her. And on the in the in at the same point, her her ex lover is uh, just trying to talk her through it and almost just try to be that that uh, platonic friend, you know, when it when it really isn't um, that way to 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 L. So it was uh, I think for me the impression that I had was just how how well it can be how a one act one per one one protagonist can be performed and. Um, how well it can engage the audience. And again, when it comes to love lost and, and love in general, I think we can all relate to that. And, um, you know, if, if you haven't had that, that opportunity to, to love or to have, to have lost love, you know, in, in the future, you might. And uh, in, in a retrospective way, it's, it's beautiful, it's necessary, it's part of the human condition or the human experience, at least, uh, to, to suffer those type of losses because uh, you can't have everything that you want. You know, and sometimes you got to take take those losses and, and learn from it. And at the end of the day, if you come out through the other side, you'll be able to tell a beautiful story just like Elle has and just like Francis Poulon has uh, shared with us. So that was just my review of Francis Poulon's Le Voix Human. And I hope everyone has an opportunity to see it. It's available on uh, the Vancouver Opera site so you just have to register and i believe there will be some other opera shows this season that will all be available digitally so this was nico martin machino i appreciate you listening stay safe and back to you sarah thank you nico for that review of la voix humaine by the vancouver opera yes i am flexing my french okay i'm fluent i have to <laughs> Okay, anyways, on to my review of the Arts Club Theatre Company's Buffoon. So Buffoon is ACTC's second play of the season. It's running until December 6th. You have more than a month to see it, and I'm saying this because you should see it. I loved it so much. Everything about it was really well done. ACTC never misses, man. They're so good. Uh, So, Buffoon. It is a one-man play, so there's only one actor. Very COVID-friendly. We love. And his character, Felix, tells us his story. Well, uh, okay, not really us, but it feels like he's telling the audience, so us. I'm not gonna tell who he's telling the story to, because I don't want to spoil it for anyone who wants to see it. So, this is a very spoiler-free review at least uh, it'll try to be. (laughs) 
So this was my second time seeing a play at their Granville Island stage. The first one was Miss Bennett Christmas at Pemberley in which they used the whole stage with very good and a lot of set slash decor but Buffoon was on the opposite side of the spectrum. The stage was kept small and the only set slash prop was a chair. Just a single chair. Also important to mention before I get more into it, uh, the show is double cast, so just like No Child, I watched Andrew McNee and will not be talking about the other uh, the oops I cannot speak the other actor, uh, Kate Kai. Oh my God, I'm sorry if I butcher your name, Kai von Koshkam. I hope that's how it is. Uh, also I couldn't help but uh compare to no child just like i did two seconds ago because they were both done by a single actor they were really different when i watched no child it was celia aloma uh, she played multiple characters as well as andrew mcnee did and buffoon but they were different when it came to the characters because i feel like there was more variety in no child and she was actually the characters and Buff- uh, like so oh my god so in buffoon the characters were him telling the story it wasn't him being that character i don't know if that makes sense so it was basically felix imitating the people in his life while he was talking about them so for example when he was saying something his mom said to him he would say it in her accent I hope that makes more sense. Also, he did all of the accents very well. And <laughs> I looked up the dialect coach before starting this review. And it's freaking Adam Henderson. I feel like every play I watch with good accents that I always mention, the dialect coach is Adam Henderson. I mean, seems like he's very good at his job. Good job. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> the lighting I have to talk about the lighting oh my god I talk about the lighting all the time because it is very important it was very well done it helped the audience emerge in the story so much I have to congratulate speak Sarah speak I have to congratulate the lighting designer Itai Ardal because it was so good there were aspects of the lighting that I was not expecting nor would I have ever thought of it myself. Super creative. They did a really good job. You know, the lighting can really make it or break it. And they made it, baby. Okay. <laughs> Moving on to Andrew McNee. His right arm was in a sling because apparently he broke his arm previously. But he still performed. That was amazing. That's dedication we want to see. Hell yeah. He he was really good. Okay, he did everything with one arm. I don't I just I'm 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 amazed. You know, when it's just you and the story you're telling on stage, it's difficult to grab the audience's attention and keep it for one and a half hours straight. This play had no breaks, it was one act. You know, this is difficult normally. And imagine doing it one one arm. This man did it with one arm. If you're wondering why I'm so amazed by this, just try telling stories. That's why. And try telling the story with one arm. That's why. Also, I really would love to listen to Andrew McNee's stories. Just like, I just want to be in the room with him while he talks about his day. Honestly, it was really good storytelling. He did a really good job. And about the story itself, I'm not going to say too much. But what I will mention is that Felix, the the man of the hour, is starved of motherly love and was basically raised by someone other than his mom or dad. And he did a really good job showing this, and by he I mean Andrew McNee, uh, whether it be how he spoke or like his gestures or like his facial expressions. I don't know if that makes sense because you're thinking, hey, if it's in a story, then what difference does it make what, you know, what Andrew McNee did? But it made a lot of difference because I understood 
this before he said it towards the end of the the play. Okay, one line that made me laugh was uh, something in the lines of, I read self-help books like Romeo and Juliet. Nice. Okay, Um, I feel like the review of Buffoon was really disorganized. I'm sorry about that. It's just that I loved it so much and I can't contain my thoughts. It was amazing. 10 out of 10. Would recommend. ACTC never misses. Go see Buffoon. It's playing at the Granville stage until December 6th. There are They are double cast, so uh, I'm sure the other actor is amazing too. I'm not gonna say his name again because I don't want to butcher it. But Andrew McNee did an amazing job. I recommend. Okay, so that's it for today's show, guys. Hey, I will be here next week talking to you again. And I'll see you then. Bye. Oh, that was awful. (laughs) Bye.